like to personally thank Ted Bundy for that intro. Yeah, that's not creepy. One bit. Nope. Nope. Not one bit at all. So, can you guess who we're doing today? <laughs> I think I know this one. I know this one. <laughs> we're doing Ted Bundy. I am super excited. Finally, we're doing Ted Bundy. Yeah. It's happening. It'll be an interesting take on it, that's for sure. We've all seen it. We've all seen it, like, I don't know how many times. Heard the stories. Yeah, people have seen the movies. You know, the, the tapes just came out in Netflix again. I think. Yep. But this is by far um, the most highly requested serial killer, and my friend Julie personally requested Ted. So here we are, and I'm super excited. I promised I would cover him. It took a while because I wanted to deep dive and give people a chance to know way too much about Ted. I want you to walk away feeling like. I know way too much about Ted Bundy. I already do, so. Yeah, and I, I think that I think that you all are going to walk away saying, you know what, I know way too much about him. <laughs> but um, before we get started, I'd like to take the time to shout out a cool new podcast that I just found and have been having a blast listening to. Uh, it's called Spilling the Crime, and the ho- Pat listened to a little bit of it uh, this weekend. And um, they just crack me up. It's um, called Spilling the Crime. You can find it on Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And the hosts are two guys from Portugal. Uh, their names are Umberto and Jonas. And I'm sorry that this white girl butchered your names, but I'm trying. <laughs> and they make true crime an absolute blast. So go and check them out. Listen and subscribe to their podcast. So... Without further ado, let's get right into this. I'm planning on making this a two-part series, but we're not going to make you wait too long for episode two, in case you're enamored. Um, God willing, we're going to have both parts up by what, this weekend, you think? I hope. We'll see. And I just jumped right into it and didn't say that this is Evil Pudding Podcast, and my name is Courtney, and my husband Patrick is here. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so excited. It's Ted. I know. I know. He's our favorite. Well, my favorite. He's definitely your favorite. He's definitely my favorite. Are you excited about this, Pat? I am. I want to see where this is going to go. Okay. Without further ado, let's talk about the Tedster. Ted Bundy. Did you just... Yep. Tedster. Do you like it? Oh, my Lord. It's going to be a long night. (laughs) 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 Okay, so let's start with... Ted's birth, childhood, where he came from, uh, in the Netflix special, the Ted Bundy tapes, which Pat mentioned earlier, uh, Ted had nothing but positive remarks about his childhood. And I was under the impression for some reason that he just had this perfect childhood because he said that, but it just takes a little digging to uncover some red flags that actually surprised me. So... On November 24th, 1946, Theodore Robert Cow was born. He wouldn't be Ted Bundy for a few more years. His mother, Louise Cow, became pregnant at the age of 22, and she was unwed. 
Remember, this is 1946, and that's a big no-no. Yeah, it's not something yeah. to do back then. You just don't do that. So Louisa's father, Samuel Cowell, and her mother, Eleanor, came up with a plan. That This was in Pennsylvania, by the way, that they lived. They sent Louise, their pregnant daughter, to the Elizabeth Lung, Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont, when she was seven months pregnant and just starting to show I'm sure this was a lovely place. I'm being very sarcastic yeah, no. in saying that. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sure it was awful. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they had nuns that just treated the kids or the, yeah, the young girls there like absolute crap. After Louise had her baby, a little boy that she named Theodore Robert Cal, she brought the baby back to her home in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Where you're from, Pat. Shout out. Uh, Her mother and father would raise little Ted as their own. Yeah, so the plan was for Ted to be raised thinking that Louise was actually his sister and that all of his aunts and uncles, Louise's brothers and sisters, were really his siblings. What could go wrong, right? Oh, yeah. There's some speculation as to whose Ted real father is. His is His name has never been revealed. At one time, Louise said that his father was a sailor. Also, she was pretty tight-lipped about it. She would never talk about it to Ted. And I think that was, too, like a lot of the women of that generation. They were well, tight-lipped, shameful. yeah, about their past. Especially that, that especially it was like a shameful thing to be doing in 1946. Exactly, exactly. It is widely speculated now that Ted's actual father is his grandfather, Samuel Cow. I am actually very on board with this theory, and uh, it's funny because Ted romanticized the idea of his father-slash-grandfather saying in later interviews with Detective Bob Keppel what a wonderful man he was and how close they had been. But it's thought by psychiatrists that this may have been co- this may have been a coping mechanism for Ted because his grandfather was known to have been a violent and perverted man, which I had no idea that was the case. Reportedly, though, he liked to take, (laughs) this is his grandfather, or his dad-grandfather, he liked to take cats and spin them over his head by the tail, catapulting them through the air. So Samuel Cowell did that. He would also abuse neighborhood dogs. Yeah, that's crazy. That's nuts. I had no idea. One time, Samuel even threw Ted's um, aunt, which was his sister at the time, down two flights of stairs because she woke up late for school. Oh. <laughs> That's a little extreme, I would say. Samuel also had a fairly extensive uh, pornography collection, which doesn't on its own make you a bad person, by the way, but it's going to come into play in a second. In later interviews, Ted had nothing but glowing remarks to say about his grandmother and or mother, Eleanor. Louise's mom. Okay. I'm confused. Yeah. So Eleanor and Samuel are Louise's parents. Mm-hmm. In case we need to play catch up. Okay. And then Ted, that's their grandson, but they're raising him like their son. Does that make sense? But it could technically actually also be his grandfather's son. Yes. That's why I'm saying I'm getting real Because confused. of incest. There's because of incest. I know. So... Not a lot is known about Eleanor, Ted's grandmother, mom. <laughs> this is very confusing, but stick with me. 
Not a lot is known about her other than she did suffer from absolutely debilitating depression. And she actually underwent experimental shock therapy sessions to attempt to treat her. Oh. Yeah. By the way, we could do a whole episode on shock therapy and its dark origins. It's insane. It's not humane at all. And I'll, I'll just say that. It's not good. So we always look at the childhood of the psychopath, right, to see if there were any red flags. And there were definitely a few with Ted. I was shocked to hear about. I, I just thought he was a pretty normal child since most people in his childhood were shocked to hear what he had become yeah. once he was. Everybody was like, he's such a good man. He's yeah. such a good kid. But at only, um, well, first he was a bright child by all accounts. He had a lot of love, grow, love growing up. But at only three years old, he started to act a little alarming. First, he started to sneak into the garden shed to look at his grandfather's pornography collection at three. That's That's very young. Then, sorry, my allergies are acting up. The tree pollen here is awful. Then a creepy incident happened when Ted's sister, which is really his aunt. Just call her sister. His sister, Julia, woke up in the middle of the night to find three-year-old Ted at the foot of her bed laughing. She glanced down and saw that little Ted had collected every knife the family had in the kitchen, hauled them up the stairs to her room, and carefully arranged them around Julia in a circle as she was sleeping, with the blades all facing inwards towards her. That's not normal behavior for a three-year-old. He's three. Three. A toddler. A baby. Like Chucky style. So I would say um, that's creepy. Also, that would make me, if this is true, which I think it is, because I I looked it up and it's reported his brother had attested to that. I think that maybe he he was just born evil instead of made evil. I don't know. Hard to say. Yeah. I know he had some trauma, but... Nevertheless, that's super creepy. I think I just would have thrown away the whole child after that. <laughs> I don't think you just throw away a child. But... Just nope. Just sell him. That's we're done with him. So, although his little parental facade seemed to be working very well for Louise's parents, his mom, sister. Just call them one title, please, because <laughs> you're confusing me more. Because you're like wife, sister, mother, grandmother. His wife's sister, (laughs) or his mom's sister. (laughs) Anyways, um, this wasn't working out for Louise, his mom. So she would take little Ted and move the two of them to Tacoma. So they moved on to Washington. She even went as far as to legally changing Ted's last name after this move from Cowell to Nelson. And this right here is what gives me cause to believe that Ted's grandfather is really his father. Because why would you go to that extreme? You know what I mean? You you pull your kid away from the only parents he's ever known. He doesn't know you as a mom. You're his sister. And then you change his last name. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, it makes me believe that, that that's the case. You know, that Samuel Cowell was his father. Yeah, it's really weird that first thing she does is change his name. So... Nevertheless, the move was very traumatic for Ted. Imagine being effectively moved away from your parents and made to live with your big sister. It's got to be confusing for him. But 
Louise quickly got them settled in, and she found a secretarial job and became active in the Methodist Church, which is where she would meet her future husband, John Bundy. You might recognize the last name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Louise and John would be married on May 19, 1951. John was a nice guy by all accounts. He tried really hard to bond with Ted by doing father-son activities with him, like, hey, Ted, come camping with me and let's go fishing, but Ted was just not into it. Ted would later say of John, his stepfather, that he was not too bright. He was really ashamed of John, and he was especially ashamed that John was a cook at an army hospital there. I know, it's crazy. What you're going to see is Ted is a full-blown narcissist. Oh, we he's, knew that. He's better than everyone. Oh, we knew that. Nothing's good enough for him. No one's good enough for him. He's you just... He's later life with he's awful. some of the stuff he does and, and even when he's in trial. Yep. <laughs> You're going to also see that Ted's super materialistic and he cares tremendously about people's perception of him. And that's that comes into play. Because what people think of Ted is of the utmost importance. Like, that's number one with him. Louise and John would go on to have four kids. I didn't know that about him. Ted really could care less about his siblings, though. They were just there. He didn't bond with any of them. Other than the youngest, he did like the youngest. But Ted was 15 when the youngest was born, and he much preferred to stay home and babysit him rather than going out with his friends in high school, which is odd. I wonder what it is about that. Well, that's that's definitely strange. No high school kids like... No, I just want to stay home with my little baby brother. Sister. Yeah, I know, but that's what he wanted. Sister and niece. Maybe it was because he was very socially awkward, and it was so much so that he developed a little bit of a stutter that came from nerves. Maybe that's why it gives him an excuse. It gives him an excuse, yeah. But Ted would begin shoplifting. We always see it starts with shoplifting, right? Oh, or we always talked about it. It's, it's it's the progression. It always starts with like. Most of them needing to feel feel this need of like being evil or doing wrong or whatever it is. Right. The thrill of like doing something illegal. They always start with like, oh, I stole this or I broke into that. And it always escalates more and more violence until they get to And that's literally what I have in my notes. I said, I'm sure it was for the thrill of it. But also it's because, remember, his family wasn't wealthy or flashy. So he wanted to steal the stuff that would make him look good, clothes, you know, that kind of stuff. The coolest, I don't know what they had back then, but, what I mean, they couldn't, like, steal an Xbox, but. No, yeah. You know what I mean. Uh, That's I, what he did. Like car or yeah. guitar or something. Maybe. Know. Who knows? Is, what is there to impress a girl with in 1965? But people's perception of him was definitely the most important thing. But he would also become a peeping Tom, which we also see a pattern of this happening. It's, all, it's sexual. Mm-hmm. It's full control is what it is. He was looking at girls through windows in their most vulnerable state. It's full control. You know, you don't know you're being looked at, so you're being yourself and doing what you need to do. And they have full control by watching you. It's awful. Yeah, but at the same time, a lot of these guys and gals even, we've talked about a lot of them that get off. They get Mm -hmm. sexual gratification from their crimes. So there's a sexualness to it. Yep. And then that bird is going crazy out there. <laughs> the hell? I know. It was an insane bird. 
And then even he dis- he started to fantasize about sexual violence towards the women that he was See? keeping on. See? So it was an es- it keeps piling on top of itself, an escalation yeah, it's upon to- it's escalation. Totally about having control, and it's, yeah. but it's also just a pure sexual urge thing. Like that's their fetish. Now it was during this time, and I had never heard this before, so I think this is pretty interesting. In 1961, Ted was 15 years old, and an eight-year-old girl named Ann Burr near him went missing in a neighborhood along the newspaper route in which Ted delivered newspapers. The main suspect in her disappearance at that time was a 17-year-old neighbor of Ann's, but after extensive questioning, two polygraph tests that he passed, he was released without charge. Anne's body was never found, and her case still remains unsolved to this day. Her body's never been found. That's great. Now, in 1989, Ted did an interview with a detective, Bob Keppel, who, by the way, is just an awesome guy. Uh, he also was responsible for, who were they? They were the cousin, um, the Hillside Stranglers okay. in California. They were, oh, Anthony, is it Borno? I can't remember the name, but the Hillside Hillside Stranglers, he caught. Now, by this time, um, when he did the interview with Bob Keppel, Ted had confessed to numerous murders, and there were some he just refused to admit to for whatever reason. However, he did say, now, mind you, he spoke in third person a lot, but he would say, and I quote, murder committed at a young age against a child victim and close to his own home. So... The Burr case matches all three of these criteria. I mean, what criteria? The, what he said murder committed at a young age, one, against a child victim, two, and close to his own home, three. Oh, I thought Annie was a girl. Anne Burr. She was the girl that went missing. They said his home. He speaks, like I said, in third person. Oh, that's right. Okay. To avoid directly admit. If you listen to his tapes, like on the documentary on Netflix, he always speaks in third person. Like his crimes did da 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 da. He would do da 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 da. You know, I mean, it was. Wow. He does that to admit, like, kind of dissuade people from thinking that it was him. Okay. I know. It's really weird. But if you go back and listen to his tapes, he just speaks weird. in third person. It's his it's his thing. That's just I know. freaking weird. It's very, very weird. But he never admitted to her murder, but it's just too much of a coincidence in my opinion. And you can draw your own conclusions. But I think that this was Ted's first victim, which is why I think he's uh, responsible for more than just 36 murders as he was yeah. charged with. Or not charged with, but it's admitted to. It's a random to. coincidence that you would say those kind of things that match up to. Too much of one, yeah. One, the one case that was never solved that fits it perfectly, yeah. Ted would graduate from high school, and he actually had a very high IQ. He was a very smart guy, but he graduated with a B average. His mind was on other things, oh, apparently. Yeah. He then went on to attend uh, the University of Puget Sound for the academic year of 1965 to 1966 before he transferred to the University of Washington, where he registered for a course in Chinese. Okay. Well, he would say that uh, China was a rising global power, and it would behoove him to learn the language. 
He also had his uh, sights set on a political career, as we will see here shortly. But, I mean, it makes sense, especially if he's going to get into politics. He wants to learn Chinese. He had the foresight. Got to give him that. But just one class? You're going to learn Chinese in one class. Is that a, I don't know if it was. It said, my research, all of it said it was a course in yeah, Chinese. this is one class. It's not going to, one class is not going to teach you, you Chinese. Say, what, but, hello, thank you. Exactly. Welcome, good day. I mean, we could probably do that. <laughs> uh, I definitely cannot do that in Chinese. So by the spring of 1967, he had found the perfect girl to fit in the perfect life that he had perfectly imagined for himself. Stephanie Brooks. Now, I've seen her name as Diane and various other names, but I she may just not want to want everyone to know her real name. Maybe. So I'm just going off of Stephanie for now. Stephanie was absolutely beautiful. She was petite with long brown hair parted down the middle. She was wealthy and refined. He observed her from a distance for a while, and he noticed that she had a big interest in skiing, which he too loved, so that kind of gave him an in with her. He was stalking her, I think. Surprisingly, she was very receptive of his flirtations, and the two quickly became an item. Now, Ted was much more in love with Stephanie than she was with him. Okay. He was absolutely obsessed with her. She was a serious, driven young woman, and at this time, Ted was super immature, and his future was just not a big concern for him. He was just kind of chilling, like most young college boys do at first, you know? It wasn't long before Stephanie took a job in San Francisco, and she set Ted down and ended things with him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm out. So uh, Ted was beyond devastated, and he was ab- absolutely consumed by this. He was so bad off that he had to drop out of college. Like, it hit him hard, this breakup. Quick spoiler alert. <laughs> All of Ted's victims closely resembled Stephanie. And I say this very, like, they look just like her brunette parted down the middle hair parted down the middle and he has more than 30 victims possibly 36 some say over 40 so it's it's definitely no coincidence she was by far the woman that he would spend his life seeking revenge on and so many girls were about to suffer for it it was just scary as hell yeah thanks you're welcome (laughs) could you imagine being her being like I didn't realize by breaking up with his weird ass and that he would go on to murder 50 people. And I'm glad you said that because, you know, it's okay to break up with someone yeah. that you just don't see a future with. Like, it is, it is absolutely fine. And, and you know, there's been a lot of people saying, well, if she didn't dump him, if she didn't, you know, treat him right, then he wouldn't have done this. It's not her fault. She didn't see a future that with him. That may be true, but it's not her fault no. that she doesn't stay in this thing. Let's stop blaming the women right. all the time. <laughs> it's you women folks' fault. It's us women folks. <laughs> so on September 26th, 1969, he would meet a young woman at a local covert, co- blah, 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 local college tavern. Spit it out, son. I know. Named Liz Klepfer. Uh, I've also seen her last name is Kendall in the movie with Zac Efron. It was Liz Kendall. And I've seen it in some books as Kindle, but also Klepfer. So she just may not want her real name out there as well. Which, can't blame you. Can't blame you, sister. So 
We'll go ahead and say Klepfer. She was different from Ted's usual type. Liz was a few years older than Ted. She was still very pretty, and she had uh, a four-year-old daughter. So this was very different. There was one thing about her that stood out to Ted, however. She gave him unconditional love, and she was in love with him from the very start. So in my opinion, she was safe for him, I think, maybe. Oh, yeah, much safer. Much safer. Um, He had a constant in his life, which I don't know if he felt like he had before. So who knows? Ted was even... Oddly enough, a great father figure to her four-year-old daughter, which baffles me because, as you will see, he killed children. Yeah, well, he's not there yet, right? I know, but still. So like, maybe he was fine with this kid because of the girl. It just baffles me. How can you father a four-year-old girl and raise her and then go on to rape and torture and mutilate? Oh, you've never seen that before? I mean, with him, he's the first one I've seen it with. But, I mean, it baffles me still. There's so many of them that have been out there that were just going to their families with their daughters and their sons. They were doing this. Well, as we'll see, it's almost like he has two different sides to the coin, like I always say. It's a duality. Or, as he calls it, the entity. (laughs) The entity? Well, it's kind of like Dexter. He called it, in the show Dexter, he called it the dark passenger. So... Same thing. It's like a coping mechanism to justify what you're doing. To justify, yeah. It's the other guy that's guilty, not me. So I highly recommend watching the documentary on Amazon if you can. It's called Ted Bundy Falling for a Killer to really see things from Liz's perspective. Her daughter is also interviewed on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a very interesting woman. And the Netflix movie starring Zac Efron is also loosely based on her perspective as well. Right. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So we're going to talk more about Liz later on. Now, unlike Stephanie, Liz saw an extremely driven Ted, and he is killing it in life all of a sudden. No pun intended. <laughs> Sorry. That's that was a, a dad joke. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was, I'll give it credit. It was good. It was just Thank oh. you. I tried. He had recently been appointed a precinct, a precinct committee man for the local Republican Party. He even received public accolades from Seattle police for chasing down and apprehending a bag snatcher. <laughs> what? And he even saved a toddler from drowning in Seattle's Green Lake. Ted Bundy did all that. To kill one later. He also worked for Seattle's Crime Prevention uh, Advisory Commission. So he's just on a roll all of a sudden. What could be motivating this, you say? I'm about to tell you. Don't I don't know how much I can figure out what's motivating it. Hang on to it. Okay, so he also volunteered at the Seattle, Seattle Crisis Clinic where he ran the phones alongside uh, Ann Roll, a famed true crime author, which she's my favorite, by the way. <laughs> I love her. It's such an odd coincidence. And this was a suicide hotline, by the way, just letting you know. And he talked a lot of people down from suicide, according to her. As well, she did as well. She would later go on to write a book called The Stranger Beside Me, which, by the way, if you have not read it, what are you doing with your life? Because it is so good. It's about her friendship and with Ted Bundy. Sounds, that's a, yeah. sounds like it would be about. It's so good. It's beyond phenomenal. We're going to talk more about Anne later on. 
So it was clear that Ted's main focus was politics, like I had said when he wanted to get into learning Chinese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he even ran Governor Dan Evans' uh, re-election campaign. It was Ted's goal, he said, to become governor one day. Thank God that didn't <laughs> Oh, my God. Can you imagine? That crazy. So this is why Ted's next move didn't make any sense to me. Ted applied and was actually accepted to University of Utah Law School. He even had a letter of recommendation from the governor. This was in 1973. But before the first semester would even begin, he wrote the dean of admissions and he said, regretfully, he regretfully he couldn't attend due to a tragic, tragic car accident that had left him incapacitated. It made no sense. The truth was that he had a he had a fender bender, and he sprained his ankle. That was it. Why would he do that? I mean, I know why. I mean, but what do you think? He didn't push it too much. I mean, he just reworded it. But I mean, he still could have attended, and his dreams could have come true, right? I don't know if those were his dreams. No, they were not his dreams. It's unclear to this day why Ted threw away this opportunity, of course, but his acceptance into University of Utah is going to come into play later. He's so. just doing all those things with the police and the crime stuff to learn about that. That's what it seems like. So when he's going to commit crimes in his later life, he knows all the procedures, everything, then, who they call, well, what people say. It's far more simplistic than that, Pat. He is the king of petty. I am crowning him right now. It is, it, it's so shallow. But don't worry, we're going to get there. I don't want to jump too far ahead. (laughs) But it is super exciting to learn this about Ted because I didn't know this about him. I'm like, wow, you're something else, dude. Okay, let's get to it. it. So for now, Ted would just settle for studying law at Puget Sound. And he took a new job as an assistant to Ross Davis, the Republican Party chair. What drove him to make such drastic shift from non-motivated, lazy, little rootless college dropout to a rising political star? This. This right here. Okay, now, Ted is very much still in a committed relationship with Liz, right? But while on a business trip to California, he reached out to Stephanie. Okay. And they met for lunch, and she was, like, blown away with the new Ted. And this successful, driven man that he had become, right? This is what she always wanted. They started dating, like long-distance dating. He would work to sweep her off her feet. He even invited her to be his plus one at a fancy dinner at the Republican chairman's home. Eventually, he even proposed to Stephanie. Yeah, giving her a ring. And she was so excited, and she was like, yes, oh my God, yes. Then he dumped her without explanation. Now she knew how he felt. Wow. So let's sum this up real quick, just in case you're you're wondering. This is my personal belief, just from studying this, deep diving into it. I truly believe that this was his long con. It was a long con. Ted went through all of this and was so incredibly driven, not to better himself, but just to hurt Stephanie like she had hurt him. He's, like like I said, the king of petty. That is like, 
the longest dark ops mission. Oh, for sure. Ever. I mean, he imagine if he would have channeled all of this. I mean, this dude lived like five years of his life. He would have made an amazing politician. Just to do that. Yeah. He really should have stuck it through and become a politician. Like, I mean, he is really good at this stuff. So, I know it's a stretch. It's a stretch, but it's Ted, so. (laughs) It kind of makes sense when you're telling the whole, this whole part of the story. It's just. Yeah. To think that it was that. This is my opinion, by the way. Shallow of a, like, you've lived a chunk of your life just to finally get to the revenge of the woman that Yeah, I just I just want to put that out there. He never stated that this was the case, but I'm just looking at facts and I draw my own con- conclusions by, you know, seeing the facts presented yeah, in front no, of me no. and what other explanation is there? He turned down law school when it would have furthered his political career. Just to go to a dinky law school or smaller. And he would even drop out of that. He had no interest in that. This was all to get back at her. That's craziness. And he wouldn't stop here because we know what he does. I mean, wow. Fighting at the reaction from her that he wanted here. Exactly. But you know what? Cheer up, Steph, because by 1974, you're going to be so glad you didn't end up with him. (laughs) Well, she wouldn't have known in 1974. No, not yet. Well, she wouldn't have known something was up, but not that it was him. Hopefully. So during the time that Ted was um, blossoming career-wise, sustaining a relationship with Liz and volunteering and attending school from um, 1970 to 1974, it would be easy to assume that he lived a perfectly normal life with little time for anything else. I mean, I wouldn't have time for anything else. (laughs) His free time is dedicated to that mission of his. I guess. But no. (laughs) He had a compulsion that he was unable to fend off. He wanted to attack a woman, ultimately. And he wanted to act out his darkest fantasies. So he started drinking heavily, got some of that Dutch courage, before venturing out. Dutch uh, courage? Mm-hmm. Dutch courage? You've never heard of that? The term Dutch courage? Well, I guess I've heard Irish courage. Well, that's because you're Irish. I'm not Dutch, but... Irish courage. <laughs> I guess you could relate it to any. <laughs> he got some liquid courage. How about that? Liquid courage. Okay. Is um, but he would venture out at night to peek into women's windows again. So he returned back to that. She broke him. Well, like if you're when you were talking about all his crimes and like his original peeping was a power thing, right? So she took that power from him. So he's got to go reestablish that. Yep. Like tenfold. Oh, Ted. Can't even. If he would have channeled all of this willpower and dedication into into anything, he would have been actually a very successful something. But Jesus. So eventually peeping into windows, it wasn't enough. So he began disabling women's cars and waiting for the female motorist to call out for assistance so that he can come and be like the knight in shining armor. But that didn't work for him either because there was always like passersby that would help them. So he began following lone women home from the bars where they drink because he was in a college town, remember? And there came one night when he followed a woman home 
specifically with the intent to attack her. Just weeks after Bundy ended his relationship with Stephanie, he went to a tavern, and as he left, he found a woman walking alone on the sidewalk, and he was far from sober, so he had no desire to fight the insane urge that he had to attack. I guess up until that point, he kind of kept Controlled it at bay. Him. Yeah. The booze just let it out. Yeah, exactly. So Bundy spotted a two-by-four near a dumpster, and he picked it up, and he followed her for several bo- blocks. He saw that there was no way he could, like, surprise her from behind without being seen. So he got ahead of the woman, and he crouched down, and he kind of waited for her to walk up. The woman, however, entered her apartment and locked the door behind her before Bundy could ever get to her, thankfully. So that was his first attempt. And Dude, picked up a two-by-four just walks down the street from home with a woman and no one says anything. Well, it was probably, if I had to guess, what, two in the morning? And she was walking home alone, college town. Well, would, college town, a lot of people are out, too. Yeah. But she, her apartment entrance might have been, like, along the alleyway nobody saw. This dude's walking around with a two-by-four for blocks. I know. It's crazy. But can you imagine, like, thinking, I used to go to a tavern near this college, like, hearing this years later. But could you just, I wonder you know, if he followed me home one night. Could you even imagine just being just being really a woman at any college, right? How many times did you go to college and you walked home drunk from a bar? Who's the thing that Ted Bundy or someone like him wasn't like? Well, it's funny that you say that because I actually interviewed your mother about this. What? And she was in college the same year that uh, Bundy was attacking. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's and right. so I said, hey you know, what did you know about this? She said, we had never heard of him. And she was up north, too, where he was. We're in the south, by the way, if you didn't know. Well, she was in the northeast. He was in the northwest. And she and he, she said, we never heard of him until, like, he went to trial later on. Like, one of his many trials down the road. So it, the one in Florida. that was crazy to me. Like, if this would have happened today, news would have spread like wow. Can yeah, but you that, imagine? But that ain't, yeah, but today it's different because it'll be it would be TikTok and yeah. FaceTimed and YouTubed and World oh, yeah. Star. It'd be on everything For all sure. over the world. Back then it was had to be big enough to fit on the, the what the nightly news or on the paper. Exactly. And also back in the, those days, remember the goals of newspapers were to be have headlines such that you can read them at the breakfast table with your family and not you know, want to toss up your breakfast. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not like today where they're like, yeah. dude, rip woman's head off and threw down the street. Exactly. So he really lived... dark, I'm sorry. Ted had... Well, <laughs> not any darker <laughs> than this. So if you're listening to this, it's yeah, right up your alley. Yeah, dark right there. <laughs> so Ted had lived out this fantasy for far too many years not to try this again. So he went out, he went out hunting the very next night. He spotted a woman fumbling with her car keys alone on the sidewalk. He approached her from behind and raised his club. I guess he came with a club. All it said was a club. It, it's the way it's worded. It's like a, he just had a club with him for whatever, and no one said, hey, that dude's just walking around with a club. I have my club. Maybe he dressed as a baseball player or a cop. We, he does. Sometimes dress up like a cop later down the road. I don't He know. might have had a baton, you know? I think Who knows? Getting too far Who knows? Just how it was worded where you, where you got it from. It just said he had a club. He raised his club. <laughs> this came from there. several sources. So it's like, well, I don't know what he, what you had. Was it like the yeah, they talk about him Walking Dead her? Club with Spice like, Yeah, Was it Negan's <laughs> Negan's? <bat? laughs> 
Can you imagine? So it, he actually struck her in the head, but she hit the ground. She was still conscious, but she was screaming bloody murder, obviously. Do the same thing. Buddy, buddy, Bundy, he fled the scene. He was like, oh, my God, she's screaming. Oh, crap, I can get in trouble for this yeah. one. So he left. He was scared of being spotted. In a prison interview. <laughs> so he, he bring me in spotted too. Like. I'm sure he looked at his surroundings. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. I don't know. In a prison interview later on, after Bundy was captured, because spoiler alert, he gets captured. I think everybody knows he gets captured. I hope you do. And what do. happens to him. I hope you do. He was asked what was going on in his mind during this time that he was attempting these attacks. And, before, you know, before the killings began. Remember, he always spoke in third person. I know. So it's very confusing. So he wants them to know what happened. But, but he, he did this to avoid. Yeah. He he did this to avoid directly I I did it. implicating himself. He's not yeah. going to do that. But he answered, there were two personas fighting for dominance over his life. Third person. The first was the rational, law-abiding self. This is a quote that tried to keep him from attacking women that was horrified by the attacks, but that also resolved to prevent him from being caught. The other, which he called the entity, mm-hmm. like I said, the entity. was malignant. It was a force that drove him to the horrific actions that he took. But the entity was about to come forward and make himself known. <laughs> you tried to make that so like epic dun, horror dun, dun, movie. Dun. It was just too long to do it. <laughs> so here we go. The first victim. Y'all ready for this? We're, we're at the first victim now? We know. It's Ted Bundy. So trigger warning. KK? Yeah. Okay. If Ted Bundy, the name wasn't the trigger warning, I guess... Courtney's going to give you a trigger warning now because, I mean, the name Ted Bundy should kind of do that. It's Ted Bundy. It's Ted Bundy. So on the morning of January 5th, 1974, 18-year-old Karen Sparks, she didn't meet her housemates for breakfast like they had planned. Karen liked to sleep in sometimes, so they weren't too concerned at first. But by mid-afternoon, there was still no sign of Karen. One of Karen's roommates... She went down to check on her, and she noticed that the door used to enter the basement, that's where Karen's apartment was located, like down in the basement. That was a lot of the houses back then in the college town. You usually had a separate exit on the side of the back. Separate. Yes. Yes, you got it. Okay. So that door, it was usually locked. It was ajar. Hmm. Weird. So the girl entered the basement, and she saw Karen. Now, this has been all day all day that she hadn't heard from her. Karen was lying on her bed underneath the covers. Weird. It's like almost evening time. Upon closer inspection, the girl saw clotted blood covering Karen's face and hair. She must have thought that she was dead. I mean, I would have. It had been all day. So, I mean, <laughs> which are other options? So, this is what happened. Bundy had spotted Karen out and about. He snuck into her basement apartment in the middle of the night. He ripped a metal rod from her bed frame, and he beat her about the head with it before sexually assaulting her. That's bad, but he wasn't done. 
he would jam the metal rod into Karen's vagina before leaving it there. What the? Mm-hmm. Oh, Rem- remarkably, Karen lived. She's given interviews to this day, and she is a badass bitch. And I just think that she's amazing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, she's something else. Wow. So, of course, she would suffer injuries that just stuck with her for the rest of her life. In a later interview, Karen would speculate that Bundy probably heard her male roommate return home and it spooked him. And that was the only reason that Bundy didn't drag her or haul her away like he would do the other girls, as you will see. Yeah. Because he hauled her away, hauled all of his victims away to a specific place. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So she luckily survived, but the next victim and so many more would not be so fortunate. Linda Ann Healy. Do you recognize the name at all? I don't remember all the names. She was a beautiful 21-year-old psychology major in her senior year of college. Senior year. God, that breaks my heart. So her plan was to work with mentally handicapped children after graduation. Senseless death. Aside from her academic achievements, Linda was also the weather and ski reporter for a local radio station, which is where Bundy probably heard her. Makes sense. Because he was an avid skier, remember? Yeah, that makes sense. So he probably would listen to the ski reports. She was living near the University of Washington, just a few blocks away from where Karen Sparks, the last victim, was attacked. On the night of January 31st in 1974, Linda went out to nearby Dante's Tavern to have a few beers with her friends. Ted Bundy had been watching her and her friends for weeks, so he was nearby, of course. Yeah. I know. I just said, look, I put chills. (laughs) It's so true. It's so scary. (laughs) So... Linda, she only had a couple of beers, and she was like, look, guys, I need to go home. I have to wake up at 530 because I'm on the radio in the morning. She didn't stay at the tavern long. She and her friends uh, walked back home where Linda spoke to her boyfriend on the phone before watching TV, then heading to bed in her basement apartment. Never take the basement apartment. Lesson learned. Bundy, who had been watching the house and waiting for lights to turn off, approached the door leading to Linda's apartment. It was unlocked. To his chagrin, of course. No one locked the doors back then. You gotta lock doors, guys. You just got to. The basement room where Linda lived was divided into two, two separate units by a thin wall made of plywood. On the other side of the wall was Brenda Little. The next morning, Brenda woke up to the sounds of Linda's alarm going off at 5.30, The alarm didn't ever turn off, so she had to get up and turn it off herself. And I know she was probably so pissed, like, oh, my God. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I got to come over and deal with it. I know. We've been there with our kids. She thought that Linda must have already left for work because she wasn't in her room, right? But her room was tidy. Like, her bed was made. So she just kind of went about her business. But then Brenda received a phone call from the radio station where Linda worked. And they were wondering where in the world Linda was. Brenda assured them, look, she's got to be on her way, guys. You know, her bed's made. She's on her way. Eventually, as a missing person, 
<laughs> because everyone was freaking out because Linda wasn't there. So yeah. detectives took the call and they were like, okay, this is serious. Detective Wayne Dorman and Ted Faunus came to take a look around Linda's room. They made the um, they saw that the bed was made, but something was off. A housemate had mentioned that Linda had a habit of pulling up the sheets over the pillow, but now it was tucked under. Small, but big. I mean, Small, but big, yeah. yeah. If she does it all the time. Every time she does it, yeah. now it's different. It, it shows you that something's not right. So officers, that caused them to pull back the covers, and they found a big blotch of dried blood, and it stained both the sheet and underneath her pillow. So, I mean, it was a big blotch of blood. One of the bed sheets, the top sheets, was completely missing. And the clothes that Linda had worn the last evening she was seen in, they were gone. Scary. But upon further inspection of her wardrobe, Linda's pink nightgown was found meticulously hanging in the closet on its little hanger with a large ring of dried blood around the neckline. Oh. Terrifying. Can you imagine that? Oh. Yeah. Oh. But the police and the family were super hopeful after seeing this that Linda was still alive. And that her assailant had dressed her in street clothes and had taken her. You know, so this caused everyone to have hope while she was missing. Yeah, yeah he just took her, just beat her into yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She wasn't, though. <laughs> Bundy had knocked Linda's unconscious. Uh, she had locked, he had knocked Linda unconscious in her bed, redressed her, wrapped her in her top sheet, and loaded her into his beige VW bug. He took her to the mountains where him and Stephanie loved to ski. Taylor Mountain. And you are going to hear a lot about Taylor Mountain in this story. Once there, he dragged her from his car, undressed her, raped and sodomized her. He sexually abused Linda until she regained consciousness. He continued to terrorize her until sunrise. Then, despite her screams and pleas, he strangled her. I hate to report this, guys, but Ted Bundy was a known necrophile. And we don't hear a lot about this, but it's he would claim to return to the bodies hidden, hidden on Taylor Mountain. He would redress them. He would do their makeup and commit atrocities to their corpses until they were way too putrefied to continue putrefied That's disgusting. it's disgusting but i'm i'm telling you this now because i don't want to keep going into it with everybody he did this and so i don't want to say after every crime that i described that he did this to those girls no, I'm, uh, yeah, I wouldn't you know what i mean repeatedly so that. so with his first like kill i'm quote unquote kill I, i'm just going ahead and getting this out of the <laughs> uh, nope, yeah, this, this goes to all the next ones. That yes, yes, absolutely. But just know that he abused the corpses until they were too putrefied. He was a disgusting pig. Absolutely. You're about to see that his time between kills also gets shorter. Oftentimes with serial killers, they have a, a urge cooling off period between kills because it satiates them, I think. and then That's what it is. But then the more they do it, the, the more they need to fix. Right, right, right. Because a lot of them will do a year, a year, six months, three months, and it's like a week, a week, a week. But this still um, qualifies him as an organized killer. 
He's very planned, very methodical. If you remember that Anthony Trenton Chase, the last one, oh, the vampire killer from last episode, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. He was a disorganized killer, and he was actually the like the epitome. Prototype. Yeah, he was the archetypal prototype of you know what a disorganized. I loved it. I loved it. Sounded super smart, babe. But he was the he was the archetype for their disorganized killer. Yes. Yes. FBI actually used them and. Ted Bundy is the opposite. He's very organized. He has. Oh, yeah, he's super organized for the most part. For the most part, yeah. But it's super methodical. You see that with his preparation, his stalking, his ritual. Yeah, the ritualisticness of them all. They're all it's the same thing over and, and over. Yeah, and there's no, uh, there's premeditation involved. That's what I mean. That's always. where the stalking yeah. and the following mm-hmm. and learning their behaviors and where they, you know, and there's, you can't deny the premeditation there. No, not at all. So, in fact, Ted's going to venture out even further to throw investigators off even more for his next attack. He's doing pretty good at avoiding being caught. On April 17th, 1974, 120 miles away from Seattle in the towns of, in the town of Ellensburg, Ellensburg, Susan Raincourt, a freshman at Central Washington State, set out across campus from a meeting she had attended to meet a friend to watch a movie. She would never make it. Susan was reported missing the following day when she failed to come home to her dorm. Campus police immediately launched a search for the pretty blonde. By the way, this was Bundy's only blonde victim that I'm seeing. Uh, I feel that this was kind of on purpose to throw off investigators, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just me. I think maybe he... He was in the mindset, let's throw him off. I think maybe he was just... Doing the acts and stuff like that did the what the girl looked like didn't matter, right? And Maybe I think this one after he does the bottom one, he's like, nope, they have to look like her. Oh, I they hate have that. to look like stuff. <sighs> okay, he thought it could just be anyone. That's why I picked the bond. or maybe what you said. I don't know. So, yeah, because well, with over thirty victims and they were all br- brunette. Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. he, his second one, he's like, well, I can do that to any girl. And it's yeah, maybe. Good. And then he did his, does it with a blonde, and it just doesn't have the same to Desired it. effect? Yeah, I don't know. Jesus Christ, then let yeah, her go, like, no, dude. <laughs> Anyways, I hate him. I hate him, but he's fascinating. So when campus police had no luck, you know, finding her, they called the sheriff's department, and deputies began questioning students. One girl told the deputies that she had had an encounter with a tall, handsome man who had his arm in a sling. He appeared to be having trouble carrying... I forgot about the arm in the yeah. sling thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He plays it. He appeared to be having a lot of trouble carrying all of his books, and he asked her if, you know, hey, can you help me? She agreed, but as she approached his VW bug... Oh, my God, this is so crazy. She noticed that the passenger seat had been removed, and she yeeted right out of there. She's like, no, that's weird. <laughs> like, could the whole imagine, passenger seat. Could you imagine being her later in life? I know. It's the survivor's remorse, right? But could you, like, could you imagine hearing all this stuff for the first time and being like, that dude was about to, like... I know. I, I couldn't. I mean, I, I can't. I can't imagine that. Him. It's just awful. Another woman had told deputies a similar story about the same man. So word had started to spread that this was all the work of the same man and that Susan's disappearance, 
you know, was obviously linked to the other girls, Linda yep. and Karen. Yep. These rumors leaked to the press, and Ted was, like, super thrilled that he was getting to read about the fear that he was creating. In fact, he was following the stories of the missing girls more closely than anyone. Narcissist. Oh, yeah, him? Yeah, it's a little bit. Oh, my God. This was not only to keep track of police and their progress, but mostly for his own amusement. He thought that he was super smarter than anyone else. We know that. Especially police. We know he thinks he's smarter than everybody. I know. I just hate him. However, police had picked up on a pattern developing with all of the disappearances, and that was something that Ted really wanted to avoid. So for his next killing, he would go out of state. Here we go. Out of state. Too much heat local. <laughs> um, so Roberta Kathy, she goes by Kathy. Roberta Kathy Parks was a student at Oregon State University. She was desperately homesick because her father had recently suffered a heart attack back home in California. Fortunately, though, her dad's condition did stabilize. So she allowed herself to let loose a little bit and meet up with a few friends for a coffee at the student union building. She disappeared, though, on her way shortly after leaving her apartment, and she was never seen again. Foul play wasn't suspected at first, though, given Kathy's recent state of mind. She had been depressed about her father, and she had been so terribly homesick, so unfortunately, it was at, at first speculated that she took her own life, which is Ugh. so sad, I know. But thinking that that was the case, the police dragged the Williamette River looking for her body, you know, like if she committed suicide, was it in the river? She sorry, was, sorry, I was quiet for a second. Our daughter just got home. I was making sure she got in. Yeah, I heard her, her shut the front door. <laughs> but she wasn't found. It would be too far-fetched for police to believe that the serial offender responsible for the abductions all the way in Washington would drive to Oregon to commit another murder. It wouldn't be even known until later that Bundy had encountered Kathy Outside the student union cafeteria, she was waiting for her friends to arrive. He struck up a conversation with her. And being a psychology graduate and someone who worked at a crisis hotline, he knew all the right things to say to unfortunately lure her. And she went willingly with him when he asked her to go for a drink. Instead of taking her to a bar, though, Bundy started to drive her out of town she was growing increasingly nervous. He would stop his car near a cornfield, and he ordered her to get out and undress. Can you imagine that fear? Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Kathy, by this time, she knew that she was about to be assaulted, and she was probably kicking herself for accepting this stranger's kindness, but she was absolutely determined to live through this ordeal. She didn't resist as Bundy raped her, hoping that it would sway him not to kill her. He ordered her to get dressed and get back into her car, so into his car. So I'm sure she was like, okay, this is it. He's just, she's going to drop me off, right? And yeah, he's just done. Yeah, he's done. No, that's not the plan. Instead, he drove her all the way back to Washington to Taylor Mountain, where his other victims 
lay dead. Mm. Bundy ordered Kathy to get out of the car and walk ahead of him where it is very possible that she would have spotted the remains of his previous victims, not yet completely decayed. Kathy would die alone on that mountain and would be decapitated. Her head would later be discovered there as well. And that was the clip you played? Mm, no, that was the Hawkins girl. Oh, that was the Hawkins girl. Georgianne Hawkins. We'll get to her in a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick side note. The way he killed poor Kathy is different in how he killed his other victims, right? He started decapitating them. It's an escalation. And a lot of people think that serial killers stick to one MO. But in the case of Bundy, the only commonality is how the girls looked and the ritual of bringing them to the mountain and killing them. That was his MO. That, yeah, in a nutshell, was him, yeah, his yeah. MO. The killing style wasn't, which is right. rare. Most killers have a certain style they use. He tends to refine his methods over time, in his mind at least. I mean, we don't look at it as that, but in his mind, it's refining his methods of killing. His, his experiments, for lack of a better word. This doesn't make him a disorganized killer, like I said. Uh, however, like our last murderer, Richard Chase, he is really, really organized, actually. So... If you can believe this, Bundy was actually sought after by the FBI and um, behavioral analyst to catch the Green River Killer and like create a profile I, for them. For some reason, I didn't know that. Yep. It's, just, it's funny because he's literally doing what he knows they would look for. Because he is that methodical and organized. So he was actually able to assist them in creating a profile to catch him. So, that's pretty cool. We'll get back to that later. No one's denying this dude wasn't a smart dude. No, he was very smart. He was just, he was not. Ill-utilized. He was evil. We'll just go ahead and say that. Ill-utilized, but yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, he was three years old when he arranged every night. Yeah, if you're doing that at three, just, like I said, throw the whole kid away. (laughs) I'm starting to understand at this point. When I said throw the whole kid away, I meant throw the whole kid away. (laughs) So anyways, just 26 days later, after the murder of Kathy Parks, Ted was ready to kill again. Brenda Ball is the next victim. On May 31st, 1974, 22-year-old, so she's a bit older, Brenda Ball told her two housemates that she was going to a popular local bar called the Flame Tavern near her apartment in Burien, Washington. I hope I'm saying that right. No idea. Brenda was uh, seen by witnesses at the Flame Tavern that night, and uh, she had remained there until closing time, around 2 a.m. By then, she was fairly intoxicated, and she asked a few patrons at the time for a ride home, but... Everyone seemed to be kind of going in the op- in the opposite direction that she was living. That's crazy. You just I know to think you could do that back then. You could be in a bar. Will you give me a ride home? Can you give me a ride home? Hey, can you give me a ride home? What about you? Like, like I'm. You, you're not going to catch me doing that today no. <laughs> at all. <laughs> Brenda walked outside and she was like, "Okay, I'm in a helicab," but. 
Fortunately, a beige VW Bug pulled up. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. And Ted Bundy offered to give her a ride home. Bundy will later recall what happened to Brenda next. He said that he started taking or talking to her as he was driving, and he asked her if she was interested in going to a party at his house. She agreed. Bundy proceeded to drive her to the house he was staying in. He never mentioned if she was confused as to why there were no other partygoers there. Um, but regardless, um, he said once she was inside with him, they continued to drink, and soon they started making out. I also want to say this is his account. Yeah. I, I take this with a grain of salt. Highly doubt she this all she probably was freaking out from the get-go. According to Bundy, they had consensual sex, according to Bundy, I want to reiterate, which Bundy found boring and unfulfilling. <laughs> his words. So maybe, maybe they did have consensual sex, and he, that's not his thing. Uh, I don't take anything that he says seriously. I'm just, it, but maybe. It does make sense. I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe he tried it with her, and it didn't work. So Bundy waited until Brenda passed out. And then he strangled her. So she's dead. Then he sexually violated her corpse before just stuffing her into his closet and going to bed. Because mm. he's tired, you know. What the fuck? <sighs> Holy he, boy. he would keep Brenda's body there for several days until she started to smell, you know. That putridness. That yeah. putridness. They start to smell, and it's just like a big inconvenience and shit. <laughs> he doesn't look at them as people. They're like toys. I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I know, but it's like you can see that he doesn't even look at them as a human being. He looks like, oh. like a toy or like a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's awful. Then he loaded her body into his car, and he dumped her with the rest of his victims at... Taylor Mountain. Mm-hmm. He would <coughs> Charlie. <laughs> no one else knows what inside if joke. They do. They're cracking up. Right now. <laughs> no. He would revisit her corpse later on, though. I guess maybe it smelled less outside. <clears throat> Gag. Still doesn't smell. Well, spoiler alert. So, like Donna Manson, Brenda Ball, she was a free spirit. So weeks had passed before her roommates reported her disappearance to police, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, it wasn't uncommon for her to hook up with somebody or go out or of town. Or just say, hey, I'm going out of town. I'm yeah. hitchhiking out of town. That was the era. Yeah. I'm going to go see whatever. So um, by that time, Bundy had already moved on to trolling another victim on his favorite hunting ground, the University of Washington campus. And here we go with the Hawkins girl. Oh, Lord. Okay. You ready? Because I'm not. <laughs> you love this crap. Well, I love learning about it. I don't necessarily love this part. No, you don't love the gory violence against people details. No, it's not my favorite. But You're just fascinated by the, uh, the, the persona. And pathology. The, yes. I'm fascinated by the pathology, for sure, I would say. Okay, so let's get this out of the way. <laughs> On June 10th, 1974... 18-year-old Georgine Hawkins left a party on Greek Row far earlier than the rest of her friends. She was a really smart young girl, and she planned on stopping by her boyfriend's house to say hey before heading home to cram for her Spanish exam the next day. 
bless her heart. The route she would have walked on Greek Row was well lit and busy. By the time she left her boyfriend's house at 1240, the street was still just as busy as when Georgian came there. So, I mean, it was hopping. It probably was right on the main little bar strip in the college town. So she felt safe making the trek home for sure. I mean, this was blocks away. So, I mean, she was Probably safe. something she hadn't done a hundred times before. Exactly. As Georgian walked past one of the houses, a male friend even opened up his window and shouted hello from her from a window. So from that point, Georgian literally had 40 feet to walk before making it to the Theta house where she lived. 40 feet. Imagine that. So somebody spotted her. That was the last time anyone saw her alive. And then 40 feet. And then she was never seen again. However, a female student down the road from the Theta house said that they had seen a tall man hobbling around on crutches carrying a briefcase that he kept dropping. He asked her if she could help him carry his briefcase to the car. She should have said no. Because she said yes. We don't help people. Sweet people. She, she agreed, but she said that first she had to go into one of the houses to retrieve some of her personal items. And she was in there a little bit longer than expected. And when she came out, he was gone. So, God, can you imagine being her and hearing about all this? So she dodged a bullet. Another male student had seen the same man hobbling around on crutches as well. It would later be determined that Georgianne was attacked in the alleyway next to her sorority house. So she probably had the basement apartment, like you were saying earlier. And she went down the alleyway. To go in. Or he's been watching. Is a blind spot. He just knows that maybe they don't go in the front door late at night or something like that. Yeah. You know, maybe they have, you know, a house mother or alarms or whatever they have on that, not alarms. Yeah, so you go around the side. So you go around the back door where there's no one at or side door or whatever it is. To make matters even worse, just all odds were stacked against poor Georgian. She was short-sighted and she, that night, was not wearing her glasses or her contacts. So Bundy would have been able to get closer, closer to her than normal before the girl could even figure out that someone who was up to no good was near her. Yeah, before he's like yeah. already within striking range. Her body would never be found, even though Ted Bundy was saying that what her head was found within 10 feet or so. Yeah, that's why I said it on the last one. <sighs> it's so sad. So by this time, the news of all the missing co-eds dominated headlines. Women stayed off the street at night and doors were locked. Finally, lock your doors. Please, always. Karen Sparks, Bundy's surviving victim. This is this is why our doors are always incessantly locked everywhere. It just makes sense. Oh yeah, I would shove our couch up against our front door every single night. I'll literally walk if out you the would front let door me. to go like put a trash can out or get something in my truck, and I come back and the doors already locked again. Yep. Yep. Like, what? Yep. I'm. <laughs> I may die of something stupid, but it won't ever be of a serial killer. <laughs> So Karen Sparks, uh, Bundy's surviving victim, was brought in and shown photos of all of the missing girls to see if by chance she knew them. That's an obvious next step, right? But that was a dead end. She had never seen them before. So they weren't at all linked. Meanwhile, Bundy was loving the panic that he had induced. Narcissist. He was a narcissist through and through, and he was thriving on the fear that he created. 
Now, he wanted to shake things up a bit, though. Before this time, he only struck at night, right? Yeah. Now he was about to strike when they least expected it, in broad daylight and at a very busy, popular resort. Hmm. Have you heard about this, Pat? I don't remember this part. Okay. But remember, I didn't go into all the details you have. I've seen yeah. the movies and I've heard the stories. Uh, I don't. I remember. I didn't even know a lot of the details of a lot of the murders. Well, I'm happy to be. <laughs> what do you think? Like, like one thing I didn't watch some of the documentary tapes that you had. I watched like Zac Efron movie and other things like that. And yeah. that they just say like this person disappeared or some people are disappearing. They didn't say. By like, the way, how did you think Zac Efron did in that movie? I thought he was really good. From the from the videos you showed me and the stuff I've seen of his interviews, he had and stuff, his mannerisms down and everything. He did amazing in that. Top notch. Because I mean, he was especially in the courtroom scene. That was the one that sold it for me. Because if you watch Ted yep. Bundy's actual courtroom tape, mm-hmm. and that's probably the one I've watched the most because that part fascinates me. Because mm-hmm. even the judge was fascinated by him. Yeah. But I've watched that one a lot, and watching that movie, Zach Efron was just like every bit about it was just like great job, Zach. I totally agree. I think that was a phenomenal performance. He's going to be so happy we approved of it. Okay. Okay. 10 out of 10, Zach, <laughs> if you care. He's so worried about our approval on this subject. <laughs> well, you have it, sir. You have it, Zach. <laughs> okay, so Lake Sammamish. By the way, do you know how long I practiced saying that? Sammamish. I would have messed it up and called it Lake Sammamish. That's what I want to call it, Sammamish. Sammamish. No disrespect A tuna sandwich. I want to call it Lake Sammamish. Lake Sammamish is about 12 miles east of Seattle, and it's a popular resort that draws huge crowds, especially during the hot days of summer. There's a lake. It's like a beach, so you can lay out. Oh, yeah, it's a lake, so there's beaches, and you can go swimming. Yeah. It's probably really close to the college, and they can just right. party exactly. up there. Exactly. People go out tanning all the time. And also, there's a lot of like corporate parties and functions there under gazebos. And oh, yeah. Maybe it was one of those like lake yeah. recreational areas. Absolutely. That That's it. You got it. So the students from surrounding towns love to go lay out and sunbathe there. Ted knew that. (laughs) On July 14th, 1974, 23-year-old Janice Ott was there doing just that. She was catching some sun on the beach. And she was approached by a tall, handsome young man wearing white shorts, a tennis shirt, and sneakers, and a cast on his arm. He smiled, and he was like, hey, do you mind lending me a hand? Janice, just say no. <laughs> Janice viewed yeah. him as, like, so non-threatening, you know, because he was, other people saw him that day. He was handsome. He was, like, super meek and mild and smiling. Well, that was always been one of the most fascinating things about him. Is yeah. He's so personable and so charming. And handsome. so handsome. Mm-hmm. He's always described as charming Handsome, personable. Yeah. Like he is the ultimate con man. That's what makes him so fascinating and so scary. I mean, he's the ultimate con man. Yeah, absolutely. So he said, I need some help loading my sailboat into my car. So I just want to go ahead and say this. Ladies, grown men do not need the help of women who are alone. They just don't. Don't offer it to them. Don't give it to them. Just... Let them find their own help, okay? I mean, is that fair? I mean, yeah, I mean, they won't put put in that position, but there's a lot of good guys out there. There's guys that he could have asked. He could have asked a guy. What about me says, I know 
I know oh, about no, sailboats. Hundred percent in like a public area like that, like yeah. Like no. what about me, Ted? Says that mind, I know about like, sailboats. In my mind, I'm thinking like twelve thirty on the highway. I got a flat tire, and I'm asking someone for help, and the woman's not going to stop. That's the only car I see. I'm like, really? <laughs> I know. It's ridiculous. But in public, yeah, there's a whole bunch of guys, everybody around. Just like, well, I mean, just from today, I mean, we were pulling into our neighborhood, and there was a woman broke down on the side of the road, and I was in the car with our daughter, and our daughter, our daughter was like, hey, are you going to help her? I was like, we don't help people. <laughs> you just can't help people anymore. I'm sorry. I'm not going to help you. Help yourself. <laughs> yeah, for, I, I can see that as a woman, especially with your child. And I will go as far as to say, if I'm on the side of the road, don't stop and help me. I will find my own help. I'm a different story in some situations like that because 90% of the time I'm driving in Texas, I have a gun on me because I have a concealed carry license. Just, so, just so help yourself. I feel a little, a little more <laughs> emboldened to do those things. because uh, I'm a little hardened, though. So help yourself. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so Janice viewed him as non-threatening, and she said, okay, I'm going to help you. <sighs> I feel so bad for her. Um, she proceeded. She was like, hey, let's sit down and talk a little bit about this, you know. What do you need to do? Yeah, so he sat down with her. And... Um, Janice was like, hey, I'm Janice. And he said, nice to meet you. My name is Ted. He didn't even bother to use a fake name. He went on to say that the boat was actually not here, though. It was at his parents' house, just a short distance down the road in Issaquah. So he decided to go to the beach and ask random girls to go back to his house to help him. We're not victim shaming, though. We are not. Because Janice, she had a big old heart. No, I'm not victim and, shaming. I'm just saying. No, I know, but I'm like, saying we're by far not victim shaming. But like, let's learn from her. Let's learn from her. Well, yeah, but dude <laughs> drove from his house to yeah. the beach to pick up some random person and ask you to go help him do something at his parents' house. Don't do it. Well, this is the clincher. Issaquah was where Janice was from, so she's like, "Oh my god, me and my family are from there." Oh my god, you know. So, of course, you know that was an in. I'm sure Ted knew that, though. Like, he probably stalked her out first. He probably did. If I had to guess. That's not confirmed, my opinion. But well, she, he's done it to every other person. Yeah, he yeah. He stalked them for he stalked a, them. a relentless period of time. He's a creeper. But she told Ted, look, the only problem is that I rode my bike over here, and I'm not going to leave that unattended, right? I mean, she's a responsible girl. He was like, no, it's going to fit perfectly in the trunk of my car, my beige VW murder vehicle. That has no passenger seat. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it, he reinstalled it. Oh, okay. That, okay. Yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> you can reinstall it. Because <laughs> other victims that survived would say, no, it was in there. Oh, you know, that's that right, kind that's of right, stuff. Right. Okay. So minutes later, fellow beachgoers would see Janice and a tall man loading her bike into the trunk of a VW bug. Oh, but Ted's not done for the day. No, 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 no. Around 4 p.m., 18-year-old, 18-year-old, oh, that kills me, Denise Asland walked away from her group of friends on the beach to use the restroom, and she was never seen again. Hmm. Wow, weird. So Ted would go on to confess in his third-person way that he had a dream of possessing and killing two girls together. And he would do just that on this day. 
Janice Ott was, of course, abducted first, knocked unconscious, and then left alone while he went to abduct quickly Denise Aslan. So both the girls were assaulted in front of each other. They were together. One was forced to watch the other girl die. Think about that. Knowing that you're You're next. You're next. He committed a double rape and a double homicide on this day. This is an escalation to say the very least. And these are his words, aren't they? These are his words. His words. But this isn't the only escalation that we're going to see out of Ted Bundy. He's going to eventually get more and more brazen. So... Hang on to that. And this is where we're going to end part one. Oh, this is, this is the stop here point. Okay. So I don't even know where we're going to stop. I know. I'm all into this right now. So, so this is where we're going to end part one. But don't worry, guys. It's not going to be long before part two comes out. But we'll record part two. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, it's just going to edit it a little bit. Yep. And we'll get it out. Part one will be out by Friday. Yep. And then part two will be out by what? Saturday, Sunday? <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Because... If they're listening to part one, it's already mm-hmm. out. So why am I telling them when it's coming out? I don't know. It's so part uh, two will be out like two or three days later at the most. Yeah. So if you're listening to part one, part two will be out two or three days from now. But guys, this is my jam. <laughs> it's your boy. <laughs> it's my boy. My boy, Ted. Not really my boy, but he's fascinating. You're, yeah. You're patient zero, if you will. Patient zero. There you go. <laughs> I like that. He's my patient zero. <laughs> he was the archetype for your obsession. Obsession. I was gonna say mm-hmm. something else, but obsession works better. Yeah, it does. Your obsession with circular sin. Yep. So stay tuned for part two. We will not make you wait much longer. And oh my gosh, this has been so fun. This has been fun. It's been a stressful day, so it's been good to sit down, decompress, and talk about some slangs. Yeah, after the hour of technical difficulties we had. Yeah, well. And we ramble. Yeah. As we always do at the end. Of course. I like it, though. They do, too. I'm sure. Maybe not. Probably not. They probably turned us off. If you haven't, you're the real real one. You're You're the homie G. We love you guys. Be good to each other. And we will see you in a couple of days for part two of Ted Bundy.